Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Sarah Ma, who is in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at McMaster University, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And she is the lead author of our lead article, um, Gender Imbalance in Gynecologic Oncology, Authorship and Impact of COVID-19 Pandemic. So... We're really very excited to discuss this article. I, I, you know, certainly the editorial team was uh, very uh, enthusiastic about discussing uh, this topic because uh, it's of great relevance. So, Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations once again on the publication and um, looking forward to speaking with you about the uh, article. Thank you so much for having me. This is an honor for me. And upfront, I just want to acknowledge and thank my co-authors, including my PI, Dr. Julie Nguyen, she sponsored me and made this opportunity possible for me. Yeah. Fantastic. So um, there's uh, lots of questions that we want to get to. So I just first wanted to start by asking you if you can discuss as to why you consider that this was an important topic to, to address. So I have to first start with a big caveat to our conversation. So throughout this, we're going to be using terms like female, male, men, women, and that does not represent the diversity and complexity of, you know, non-binary or intersectional identities. So that's the big caveat up front. But, you know, increasingly, we're starting to have this conversation about this very well-established now gender, gender gap in medicine and academia. And a really common response is that this gap in publishing and leadership and professional advancement for women is because women are just outnumbered, right? In many specialties, especially in surgery. So we think that passively as the proportion of women increases, then everything will just catch up alongside. And so that's why we felt that investigating this topic in an already female dominant surgical specialty like gynecology oncology was really important. Uh, so we know that the Canadian proportion of women in OBGYN reached 50-50 in 2012. And in the United States, it surpassed 50% in 2013. So it's actually been more than a decade now since we've achieved gender parity in the OBGYN workforce. And then since 2010, we know that more than 80% of American and Canadian gynec fellows have been female. And as of 2020, women are 55% of American academic gynecs. And I've done some recent work with Dr. Nguyen that has also found that they're almost 70% of Canadian gynecs. So the significant majority now. And on top of that, you know, adjust, addressing gender inequity felt really important when we planned this study, which was in 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic, because this actually is something that risks widening the gender gap even further, but also is an opportunity for us to center diversity, equity, and inclusion as we restructure their healthcare system post-COVID. Great. Thank you so much for, for that introduction. And I think that really lays out the, uh, the, the field and where we are now. Um, and thank you actually for providing some of those figures, which are, are I think our audience will find quite interesting. Um, the next question I want to ask you is actually, as you know, some of the questions come from the fellows of the International Journal. Um, so this question actually was both from Florian Joshin from France and Demetrius Nasiudis from the United States. And they ask, uh, gender inequality in academia is well established. Promotion gaps and salary inequalities have also been previously demonstrated in, in the field of gynecologic oncology, uh, reflected by an underrepresentation of women as senior authors. So they wanted to ask you, as the primary author, in your opinion, what factors are contributing to this inequality? 
So the factors that contribute to gender inequality are quite complex and they're very deeply entrenched. We know that female physicians are more likely to also have domestic partners who work full-time than male physicians. And women still assume a greater share of domestic and household responsibilities than their male counterparts, even when they're full-time physicians, in addition to clinical and academic responsibilities. And in addition to these very persistent socially constructed roles, there are also biases, conscious and unconscious, about the expectations and capabilities of men and women. So there's a really interesting classic randomized double-blind study that was published in 2012 by Moss Rackison et al. And they conducted this on research faculty um, at research intensive universities. And they were asked to rate an application for a lab manager position. And they randomly assigned it either a male or a female name. And with the exact same application materials, the applicants with male names were rated as more competent, more hireable, offered a higher starting salary and more deserving of mentorship opportunities. So now if you translate these biases to the medical setting where women are less likely to get grant funding, be mentored in research or provided with dedicated research time or be published in journals, then we have our traditional promotion criteria, which makes them in future less likely to get future grants, be invited to editorial boards or to speak at conferences to get academic visibility or be promoted to leadership. And the cycle just perpetuates itself. Amazing. And uh, I'm glad you highlighted some of the, the results of, of that study, because it really, again, shines light on the, on the, the, the issue that, that we have uh, as it pertains to this topic. Um, one of the things, and you briefly alluded to this earlier, is that you highlight the issue of academic productivity during COVID-19. And I think, you know, certainly um, for, for all genders, this, this, was a, this was an issue, but particularly, obviously, you were interested in, in productivity um, according to genders here. Tell us a little bit more about that. What, what was your hypothesis behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we all acknowledge COVID-19 has had a significant impact on basically every realm of life for people of all genders, all ethnicities, but it was disproportionately disruptive for women. And that's because women still continue to shoulder a greater proportion of domestic and childcare responsibilities in the home. And these rose substantially during COVID when school closures forced parents to stay at home or when people needed to care for elderly dependents. And similarly in the work setting, teaching and clinical responsibilities, which women tend to be more responsible for than men in proportion in the department, had to restructure rapidly, transition to virtual care, virtual teaching. And so all of these additional demands reduce the available time and resources for women to participate in research and to publish. And that doesn't even really take into consideration the mental health impact and the burnout, which we know now are more common in female gynecologists with the publication of the recent 2020 SGO State of the Society survey. So. Amazing. Great job. Yeah. So um, let's get into the study. Uh, what were the objectives of the study in particular? Uh, so we had two overarching objectives. So the first was to describe the current and historic gender representation in authorship, first and senior, as well as editorial boards of two major peer-reviewed gynecologic oncology journals, so gynecologic oncology and the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And then we also evaluated the early impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on gender representation in publications and authorship. Great. Um, and how did you go about actually performing the study. Tell us a little bit about your methodology and, and your inclusion and particularly also the exclusion criteria. Right. Um, so one of the first important steps was defining our time periods of study. So for our first objective of describing the current landscape of gender representation and authorship, we studied the past five years, which were 2016 to 2020. And we chose five years to account for some variability year to year. 
And then we also wanted to broadly compare trends historically over the past two decades. So we compared that five-year period to single years 2006 and 1996. And then for our second objective of examining the trends in relation to COVID, which was declared a pandemic, as you remember probably too well, in March 2020, we compared 2019, which was the year immediately prior to the pandemic, to the early pandemic period year of May 2020 to April 2021. Um, so our methodology was a retrospective bibliometric analysis of all original research articles, reviews, and guideline or society statements that were published in our two included journals that solely published on Guignon topics. Uh, we excluded videos, editorials, letters, and conference abstracts, and we assessed the gender of first and senior authors for each article, combining their first name, uh, photographs, and pronoun use from institutional websites, as well as Google searches. And so unfortunately, we did intend to include the Journal of Gynecologic Oncology, which would have provided more international representation, but we were not reliably able to assess the gender of author based on name alone or Google searches for many Asian author names. So unfortunately, we had to exclude that journal. Um, and then for the editorial board portion, uh, we collected the editorial boards from the January issue of 1996, 2006, and 2020, and used the same methods to determine gender. And we compared gender proportions over the years using chi-square tests. Yeah, and, and I should just highlight also, as you mentioned, that the Journal of Gynecologic Oncology is primarily based out of Korea, uh, and therefore it's a primarily Asian um, uh, population journal. Um, so again, um, highlighting that the issues you brought up with regards to the exclusion. So thank you for clarifying that. Um, now, uh, tell us about the results first, and as it pertains to gender representation in publications. Right. Uh, so we included a total, a total of 3,000 and over 3,800 articles across all our study periods. So first, when we looked at first authors, we found that the proportion of women as both first and senior authors significantly increased over time. So across both journals, the rate of first authorship for women rose from as low as 9% in 1996 to 40% in 2006 to now 57% over 2016 to 2020. Um, but we did notice that there was a lag in the proportion of female senior authorship. So this was as low as 7% in 1996 to 23% in 2006 to 42% from 2016 to 2020. Great. And, and uh, you know, you certainly mentioned, uh, looking specifically at this data, that there was a, a, an increase in the representation for female first authors from 9%, I believe, in 1996, mm -hmm. 57% in 2020. And in an editorial that certainly we invite everyone to read, uh, written by Christina Fotopoulos from the UK, she actually titles it, Will Men Manage to Catch Up? <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on, on future goals and, and what will be ideal? Mm -hmm. I, we are very grateful for Dr. Fatopoulou's really thoughtful editorial, and she does highlight the impressive work of women in gynecologic oncology and their resilience to the challenges over time, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, I would say I'm very early in my career. I'm still a fellow. And, you know, I envision what we could achieve together in gynecologic oncology and like more broadly across academic medicine, if we could co-design a system that structurally supports and empowers women and positions of other marginalized identities to succeed and thrive and contribute rather than relying on individual resilience to overcome the barriers to doing this. And you know, a diverse academic and clinical workforce that represents the diversity of those who have gynecologic cancers is what will actually allow us to provide more equitable and high quality care universally. And it will maximize our shared intelligence, our creativity in academia, 
I do believe that part of finding solutions to really challenging problems in Gagnon that have gone unanswered may actually require us to listen to voices that we have been missing or excluding. Fantastic, great. Uh, so um, one of the other questions that came up is, could, could these findings also be a reflection of the overall percentage of women as part of the subspecialty during those time periods? Uh, I think you alluded to this briefly before. Can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. So we weren't actually consistently collecting data on gender proportions in physicians and trainees in Canada or the United States prior to early, early 2000s. And internationally, the data is even more challenging to, to tease apart. In the Canadian setting, the earliest data we have for the specialty of obstetrics and gynecology is what we can use as a proxy. So women represented about 30% of practicing OBGYNs in 2000. And then between 2006 to 2007, women were about 40% of practicing OBGYNs in Canada and the US which roughly corresponds to the 40% of female first authors that we found in our study in the two journals in 2006. And then as I referenced by 2020, women are now about 55% of American um, academic gynecologists and about 70% of Canadian gynecologists, which is again, comparable to that 57% of female first authors that we found in our study from 2016 to 2020. So I think it's fair to say that the increase in female first authorship has risen in parallel with the proportion of women in gynecology. But I think it's important to note equally that the trend of female senior authorship is lagging. And we wonder whether this might be actually illustrating the leaky pipeline effect, which is where the proportion of women starts to decrease with increasing or ascendancy to more senior positions. Great. And um, as a follow-up to that, um, one of the questions from Natalie Medley from uh, Jamaica is, what, what do you think has accounted for the improvement in female authorship over the years? What do you think is the primary reason for this? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, the nature of our study precludes us from actually drawing conclusions about why, and that's an important avenue for future research. Um, some of this may, again, be due to the simple fact that there are now more women in our subspecialty, more in academic gynecology. Uh, we also know that many women now are delaying childbearing or choosing not to have children, which may lead to perhaps increased time spent on work or academic pursuits. And we have certainly had women and men in gynecology who have been pioneers and champions for equal gender participation in research. So these are some of my my hypothesis. <laughs> Great. Now, uh, another segment of your study and your results, uh, Florian Joshim um, draws on this uh, segment asking, you also looked at women representation in editorial boards and as editors-in-chief. What did you find? <laughs> uh, so while the rate of female representation on editorial boards has risen significantly in both journals over the past two decades, so from 9 to 17% in 1996, to around 40% in 2020, across the board in all time periods, men have represented the majority of editorial board members. And this was similar when we looked at the subset of editorial board leaders um, with only about 33 to 43% of editorial board leadership roles being held by women as recently as 2020. And when we look across all time periods, women have only ever accounted for about 20% of editorial board leadership positions. And as we know, there has only ever been one female editor-in-chief across all time periods in both journal studies. Very well. So um, let's get on to the topic of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what, what did you find as it pertained to gender representation in publications? And how are we to interpret these results? Yeah, great question. So when it came to the impact of COVID on author gender, 
we found that the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic did not yet result in a significant difference in the gender of authorship compared to 2019. And, you know, I appreciate Dr. Kutupalu's comment that this shows the resilience of our Ghanaians um, through the pandemic, but we equally believe that it's important to interpret these results with some caution. It is favorable that we didn't see a dramatic decline in female authorship in the first year of the pandemic, but we have to acknowledge that there is a time lag between when research is conducted and then the manuscript is written and then it's actually published. So articles published in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic would have included research conducted prior to COVID, which would dilute the pandemic effect on publishing. And although the early evidence is conflicting, there have been studies in other specialties that have noted that women are less likely to write manuscripts publishing COVID-related research, which we know was conducted during the COVID pandemic. So we need to continue monitoring the impact that this pandemic will have on academic productivity to address these concerns early and to try to mitigate the long-term impact this may have on the careers of female researchers. Yeah, those are really great points and, and actually opens uh, opportunities for further research to look into those specific details of the time Absolutely. of the COVID pandemic. So that, that was really very good points. Mm -hmm. um, now, the next question is, do you think, and I don't know if you actually could have, you know, drawn any conclusions from, from your data as it pertains to this, mm -hmm. but do you, do you have any data that has explored this same question for women at an international level specifically, uh, I guess out of the United States and Canada, uh, authors mm -hmm. outside of those regions? Right. Yeah, I mean, obviously the two journals we study do represent international research to some degree, and so we can paint a partial picture, but we were limited in our ability to look at publications and journals from other countries or written by authors who we could not reliably assess the gender of the author based on name alone. I think this is a really important research question in terms of our global development as a Ghanaian community. So I hope under, in other international groups will address this in the future. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting to, to mm -hmm. see. Um, another question from Natalie Medley. Um, she asked, do you think there is an association with gender and the type of publications? Like, so for example, clinical base versus translational versus basic science? Yeah, that's a really interesting question that our study didn't address. I mean, we do know that there are gender gaps in national health research grant competitions and that gender disparities in publication authorship are incredibly consistent and pervasive across medical specialties, the natural sciences and social sciences. So my hypothesis would be that there will be gender imbalances across all publication types, but future study specifically in this area might help develop more targeted mentorship strategies for women in higher disparity research types. So it's a great future looking question. Yeah. I think the fellows are giving you a, a lot of uh, potential ideas for future study. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so this next question comes from Felix Bore. He's in Spain. Uh, and I think it relates back to the study that you mentioned about, you know, sort of like the blinded review of the grants. He says, he's asking, do, do you think there may be a bias depending on the reviewer gender? In other words, men accepting more papers written by other men as primary authors or senior authors? Mm -hmm. So there has been limited research specifically to look at why gender disparities in publishing exist. And that's in part because there's a traditional lack of transparency on reporting the gender of editors and reviewers, as well as those of manuscript authors. Some previous studies have found that there are lower proportions of female first authors in journals that have a male editor in chief. Um, some have found that there are male editors are more likely to assign manuscripts to male reviewers and that perhaps reviewers are more likely to recommend rejection for authors of an opposite sex to their own, which would disadvantage women in that case. 
But this is also contradicted by a 1994 JAMA study and a recent study uh, by the Journal of Pediatrics that found no differences in manuscript acceptance rates for female authors depending on gender of reviewer. So this is an area that greater transparency in the manuscript review process may help us to tease out. Um, but we also need to be looking at other wider contributing factors to inequity in publishing. Great. Um, this next question comes from Demetrius Nasiudis. Also, he asks, what measures could leadership employ to promote women faculty development and narrow these gaps? Yeah, I really think it starts with listening to the diverse experiences of women in their department, including their work and their home lives, their identified barriers to productivity, and using this information as the basis for providing focused support and protection for research and professional development. You know, a one-size-fits-all approach across the entire faculty is probably not going to be the answer. I think another important measure is to improve transparency and to integrate very deliberate diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies in hiring and promotion to leadership and what those criteria are. Um, it's also really important to support women's careers and the integration of work-life balance strategies, as well as to improve parental leave for people of all genders who choose to have children. This will help everybody. You know, there's also really innovative opportunities to recognize and compensate traditionally undervalued work responsibilities that are more commonly held by women. So teaching, clinic, uh, clinical work, institutional service, um, by providing research or domestic support resources in exchange for these tasks. And one of these innovative programs uh, that we can look at for a model is Stanford's time banking program. And I think finally, there's evidence supporting strategies to deliberately create targeted academic mentorship and sponsorship opportunities for women and other marginalized groups, as well as introducing implicit bias training across the entire department. Fantastic. Really, really well articulated. So, Sarah, I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you and uh, I want to be respectful of your time as well. So one last question. I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. If you were <laughs> editor in chief, if, if you had my, my job, how would you implement strategies to increase representation by women as authors and as members of the editorial team? So I do want to highlight, not just because I'm talking to you, but some of the great things that have some evidence that are being done by IJJC and by yourself. So the amplification of diverse authors promoting their work on Twitter, that actually has some evidence for you know, increasing visibility. Uh, inclusive mentorship of a very accomplished and international group of fellows and your junior editorial board um, and centering gender equity research. So those are great positives. I think requiring implicit bias training as a component of the training to become an editorial board member would be one consideration. Um, continuing to diversify editorial boards and striving for a board that is representative of those who both practice Ganyang as well as the population of Ganyang patients that we serve. And that may include examining the metrics for who is invited to participate and ensuring that they are gender neutral. Um, striving for diversity in those who are selected to provide journal editorials or invited commentaries, because that's a great spotlight for their expertise in the scientific community and ensuring that there's diversity across different groups and different genders. Um, another opportunity is for transparency in the tracking and reporting of gender, race, and other identity data in authors, manuscript reviewers, and for monitoring um, for evidence of gender bias through this, monitor, uh, this tracking opportunity. And you could use that both to monitor the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the success of other interventions to improve gender balance in publishing. And finally, there are the Sex and Gender Equity and Research or the SAGER guidelines, which have been published 
and um, considering how these might be applicable in gynecologic oncology research and familiarizing the editorial members. Fantastic. Sarah, mm -hmm. thank you so, so much. I certainly encourage all to read this really very important and interesting article titled Gender Imbalance in Gynecologic Oncology Authorship and Impact of COVID-19 Pandemic. Sarah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and congratulations again. was very impressed by your interview. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time.